Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth in Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsoft.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the group. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, and I thank you as always for watching the video version of Funkinsoft.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio version on iTunes, Spotify, Google, what have you. I also want to give a shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio of which I'm proud to be a funk ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, a man who has been a prime figure and one of the most active members of Parliament Funkadelic's Funk Mob since the late 1970s, Michael Clip Payne. After receiving his first official credit on Parliament's 1978 masterpiece, The Motor Booty Affair, he would go on to lend his vocals, keyboard, and other things to more than 20 P-Funk projects. He also became a touring fixture in George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. And the 2000s branched out to establish We Funk, AD2K Records, and Filmworks. And the two, um, from, I'm sorry, from which he spun off his own groups and projects, including Drugs and 420 Funk Mob. Clip, so glad to have you. How are you? Hey, good to be here. Uh... I'm doing great. Thanks for joing the Love show. Yourself. I'm doing good, man. Thank you. Yeah. So you're coming to us from uh, where? Woodstock. 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 Home. Home. Yeah. Uh, we Funk headquarters. <laughs> yeah. But. I've never been there. Do they have like things around that you know pay homage to it? having been the site for that historic, you know, Woodstock? Yeah, there's, there's things about it. <clears throat> um, I see it as a fading thing now. Uh, it's been 50 years of that. And uh, I see it's still there, but the, those, those, those kids, those uh, youngsters, who were there during that time who pretty much made them, themselves the people of Woodstock. They're now, you know, the grannies and the and the grandpas and they they're still holding on to, you know, with the spirit. But uh, you know, there's a millennial wave happening and mm-hmm. I I've actually watching like a new a, a, a woman who was like you know a new home buyer and she she came past my coffee place i've been sitting there for over 20 years and she she had to the door and she she turned around to me and a few other people and she goes can someone do something about these hippies around here you know and <laughs> she was a youngster and it was almost an insult because the the ladies that I was sitting with, like, you know, they were in their 70s and, you know, almost 80, and they were looking at her, you know, maybe 80, maybe 80 plus, huh? and they were just looking at her like, wow, you know? So, uh, yeah. Goes by a flash, too. Yeah, there's a spirit, and then I'm a, I'm a youngster because uh, during that whole Woodstock era, I, I was like 11, 10, 11. So, uh, I definitely wasn't one of those kids that would have made it 
to the festival. I, I was in the Midwest and I couldn't go come off the porch. I think at that time. So that's right. So you're you're from Detroit, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Born and bred. Well, that's a heck of a music mecca to be from, right there, too. Yeah. That's a. Uh, yeah. That's music. Uh, if you when I was seven or eight. There was so much, well, there was so many musicians and so many people practicing to, to you, you knew that people were like one of three things. They were like ready for a factory, ready for Motown, or other, you know, and other could, be, could have been, but I think, you know, one third of the people probably like practicing for Motown. So I saw that at an early age. It's like, wow, okay. Which one, what, what is a job and what is a career? Because I was like, at that time I was from, I'm from North End of Detroit and North End is, is uh, we had Chrysler. We, I could see from my old house when I was like five or six, I could see, uh, people welding right outside the door <laughs> so i knew what that was did people in your family work there uh, yeah my my grandfather worked there my father he he wasn't like the a factory guy but he had a he actually had a, a job there that he could wear a suit to uh, but my uh, my grandfather did it he was really a butcher. He's the one who raised me. And uh, I think after a, a, a recession or something in America during some time, he took on the, the UAW thing and kind of got locked in. So he, had, he did both this thing as a, a butcher. And he, you know, he owned his own store. And then he... he after a while, you couldn't tell which one he was moonlighting for. You know what I mean? He had the factory going, that's good money. He had the store, and that was a good, great hustle, and that was his passion. So uh, I was raised in that, and I could see all of that. And then I, music was going to be my choice out of, out of all that. I, I could see all of it firsthand. Nobody sugarcoated any of it for me. You know? what, what was your first music experience of any note? My first musical experience? Yeah, I mean, did you try to play something? Did you try to sing? Did you go somewhere where other musicians were laying it down? Uh, I had a, like a family members you know i had a aunt salona who could really come in and really like rock the the piano that sat in our house nobody had a piano i mean none of us played the piano but she would come up from alabama and aunt salona could really just like rock it so we, her and uh i had a a family friend his name was Emmanuel. Uh, 
I don't know if you know uh, Val Young. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Rick James. Yeah. Yeah. Val Young's dad. I knew him <laughs> from the other side of town. And he was the kind of guy that if you, when we took a walk through these particular neighborhoods and, you know, my family knew all these people over there. This guy would make me sit on a on on the steps and hold a guitar, and he would say, "Hold that chord," and he's just say, "Hold it and strum." And then he he probably was my first Eddie Hazel. <laughs> he he could you know he could play all through that, and I was pretty young, so yeah. Val Young's dad probably was one of my early influences. And then um, <clears throat> on my on my block, I, I mean, music is, everything is an influence, really. You know, on my block, you know, there was in the middle of, of uh, my block when I was really, really young, there was, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Who's my man that wears the crown and the big K? Oh, uh, uh, Solomon? Solomon Burke. Yeah, Solomon yeah. Burke. Solomon Burke used to be, and this is when I was like five and six. And my, my mother would walk us. Like, we didn't go to a church. That wasn't our thing. But my mother would all of a sudden have us walk past this place and go into the church and later she pretend that uh that she was picking us up from church so like we'd be running out of this church because the people would be doing it you know falling all over the floor it was like a serious holiness church and and uh we could come running out and then she looked like she was retrieving her kids from the church knowing that it was going to run out but she was really, when I look at it now, she was really just trying to walk past the place where Solomon Burke, he stood out, you know, and, you know, he was kind of, he was a thin guy at that time. And he was a you know, thin, hip he, guy. He had that really dramatic show he would do. He yeah. was the first person I ever got an autograph from. He, get, he, <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote his name and my name on a dollar. And gave it to me. Here you go, kid. And uh, I didn't even know his work, but I just know some some things. When you're young, you see where your parents get excited. And you go, uh, oh, no. I I had a lot of that. Older cousins, you see them what they're excited about. And uh, for me, it's just uh, that stuff makes you react and then you go like, wow, I want to make people react. But I honestly didn't practice any kind of music. I was a trumpet player in, in third grade all the way up until I graduated. I was a trumpet player, but I, I wasn't too keen on horn players. I didn't think of them as hip. I, as I got older, I didn't think of them as hip. Yeah, I like horns, but I didn't like necessarily want to hang out with horn players because as I was older getting older I was like more about the black power struggle the the hippie struggle the white white panthers black panthers 
everything about the the, the changing of the culture. I, I just got it all by default because I was just a kid growing in it, you know. Like to me, in funky music, there's there's a moment for everybody that they that like they they found that moment and they knew they know that either that song was going to change their life and almost at some point something about the the words or the message that they were they were receiving more than likely that was their funk like they knew that that was the scary thing to talk about or just the frequency it was on the frequency is it's really about the, the frequency like to me you know you get into like this is why I got a problem with like everybody claiming funky and yeah we can all claim funky because all of us have that moment but when you have people who say oh yeah I know what funky is it's like it's this it's like no because sometimes it's it's not from side to side it's going this way you don't know what it is it's uh you know i'm sure somebody listening to pink floyd that's a funky moment like they know that this is like oh wow the moment funk is not clinical or, no. or scientific no yeah, exactly exactly and i think every artist has got one of those like you know um i did a session one time for a, a French techno uh, DJ. And uh, he and his management, they were there. I was doing it in New York. And I had like these, I had Belita and uh, Elizabeth Wither, Elizabeth Withers, like, they're like all killing it. Felicia. Uh, Felicia Collins on the guitar with us in the room and this song was as far as I was concerned was like made for like these women and these women at the end of the day once they all had once I could see them all giving it total approval as far as the women in the room Young girls, older girls, you know. Uh, I was like, I'm done. This is great. It's a wrap. We got a hit here, and the and the uh, the song was the song was uh, the song was really like you know it was called "You Take Me There." There, where I had no clue what we were talking about, but I was writing it like. It's there, you know, you take me there, and it was very vague. So for me, it was a hit. And then the, the management came over, and they, they look, they're looking like not as, not digging it like we were digging it. And then, and the guy goes, I go, is there something wrong? And he goes, yeah, uh, ETN's not feeling pain. It's, it, and, ah! Uh, what what year was that? Well, maybe uh, maybe like 97, 90, 97, maybe. I'm not sure. Well, the the general area. 
yeah, but it was just, you know, the, the deal was their neurons on what they needed to feel was completely unlike what was a room full of Americans. Like, it's a hit this way. And they went, mm, yeah, you know, and, and the deal is, Myself as a, like a writer, like a, a ghost writer, write for people, but like I don't write the whole thing. Most times I'm just uh, correcting so that it fits the the sense fits. Helping shape and mold the. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as a writer. It's more like as a muse. My job has been that of janitor and muse. I don't. I'm not an artist. I'm not a, you know, like for my own thing, I'm a producer, but I even produce, I like producing producers. You know, I like producing MDs. I like, I like showing academia a wrong way to think of, think of it. And I learned that from George and I'm not h- half as good. I'm not at one tenth as good as uh, Gary Scheider or, or George when it comes to the abstract, because I always but like, like being sort of a sounding board. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know what I, we, I think what you, what I was doing and and what I've kind of learned that like even right now in P Funk, what is P Funk today? Like I see people saying, well. P-Funk is this moment and that's that moment. And like, it's not that at all. It's because, you know, there was a moment that the fab five of the Funkadelic were that Funkadelic. And then you go back and you find out that it was like actually the five, 15 or 12 people on the record. And then you get to the next record and the five five is four plus a new guy and that's another chemistry but we dig it because we we find it as a progression because parliament and fungadelic for me was the brand like you you know the brand now we call it the brand or we call every guy darn thing the brand but it was the brand it's like the first time you went like fungadelic Okay, there's a thought. Not there's a band. They're not the Beatles. You know right. What I'm there's so, a it's, it's a concept. It's a it's a feeling. It's yeah. a mentality. It's a mentality. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I, I, I don't know if you have you ever seen a uh, what's the there's a documentary on uh, on uh, Metallica. Oh, the the movie, the feature film? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. The best portion of that movie is Lars has got, like, these demos, and they started the record, and he trusts, like, he honors his dad, and his dad is, like, this guy who's long, long beard with a staff, and you know, he's laid back and he's actually like, he's lived his life and he now he lives in, I don't know, Norway or somewhere. And he, he comes down and he listens to the thing in the studio. 
and they play the songs and Lars is looking at his dad like, so what do you think? And his dad goes, do you want me to tell you the answer that you want to hear or do you want me to tell you the truth? And the, the where the part, his response was just so beautiful. He said, what if you want me to tell you the truth, I would say th trash all of that. He says, in, in round figures, he says, like, basically, you're Metallica. That name is what you've established here. And Metallica, the thing, the thought, the whole, whatever that's supposed to be, the logo. If you got an ego about the logo, you know that everybody's trying to be a Metallica. And you sound like everybody trying to be you. You got to step up the game and raise the bar. Or, and I thought, oh, I'm sure that was probably the most beautiful kick in the ass that you could give your given artist and ha have them respect what you're saying. He's totally respected his dad's thing. He's like, yeah. Um, you Once you establish the name like Funkadelic, then you have to like fit things in there to actually make that thing matter. That's not, you know, even, the, even if you say Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington means that I have to find players that are going to make, I, I as Duke Ellington, I can do what I do but I have to have players that feel like I'm trying, the feeling I'm trying to express. And then next year I'm trying to express something else. I don't need all of those players. I need these, you know what I mean? It's, so you don't get to be the five five. It's, and um, I dug that about Funkadelic because I saw it as, as a youngster. Like, oh, they're, you know, just how uh, crazy they were messing with the knobs alone. It's like, I like them. It's, you know, I like them above, like, I didn't learn, you know, everybody learns to say, especially if you're black. That was our, I mean, for me. Yeah. That was my <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. And that was my, the the rest was, I, th I, I think it went over my head. I was too young. And I think that I just assumed that Jimi Hendrix was playing be because of the, t you know, when you're young and that, it's just like now where we're in, we're in uh, 2019. So we're going to be in the to 2021. By 2024, on music side, I don't know if we better hope that we have water, but by 2024, we, we, uh, we're probably, probably thinking on some new space age way of hearing music or some old way of thinking, uh, of music. That's just everything that's made from, from now to 80, it's just going to be a, a fight like, like who's going to last and all that, you know, 
um, what kind of sound is going to define the 2020s, you know? And exponentially, the, the 2020s, like, you know, you can be in, like, it's going to be where they're, like, that was so 2018 and in, in 2019. People do it now, you know, kids do it now. Oh, that was so last year, you know. And uh, so there's a lot of that to sift through to find out what's going to be. Yeah, but even so, no matter how much that happens, there's still certain artists and certain tracks that have more of a timeless quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think and I think a lot of that has to go back to the songwriting. But right. Yeah. Oh, I think songwriting is like the most important part of the thing. Like, you know. Uh but for me, a lot a lot of bands like Pink Floyd, like you know, people like Pink Floyd. I hear people say, Oh yeah, that guy played guitar really, really good. But I, for me it was just like New age aesthetic when I was 18. Like, oh, okay. I like it. I don't really know. It's like Hendrix to me. I don't know if I'm, I'm supposed to think of that as great, but okay. And I'll, what I like about it, I'll add to my possibilities of what I'm going to ever do. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, Clip, you mentioned about, you know, maybe uh, hearing something like mm -hmm. something funky at some point right. that clicked for you. Hey. What was that? For me, uh, uh, in funk? Yeah. It's too many, like, express yourself, here come the judge. Mm -hmm. Um the uh, Shorty Long's version and Pick Me Markham's version, you know, um, Stand By Me. Like, those things are like funk. I mean, they're deadies. Uh, runaway Child, Running Wild. Uh, a lot of, a lot of Norman Whitfield. Absolutely. I wasn't even aware of Norman Whitfield other than like, when I was nine, I met Mr. Whitfield. But it, after that day, I think what I caught from him was the fever of wanting to be in a room and making records. And I was like, how, how, why and how did you meet him? Uh, man, I was. When you come from Detroit, like I say, you got you got three things the others now one of one of the others being in you can be an apple picker you can be uh you know you can be a of course you can be a doctor lawyer whatever but you can be you can work in battle creek and i went to battle creek to the old kellogg's factory and and we learned about veganism and the whole shebang bang I was maybe nine years old, and we were coming back on a school bus, and we passed Motown B, which was on the road, Davidson Avenue in Detroit. 
And we passed the thing and all the kids hit this one side of the bus. Like, wow, Motown. And we all said, we want to go there. And the teachers in, on the bus said, maybe one day we will. Now, I don't, I don't know what she did after that. But I couldn't even tell you how long after. It could have been a month. It could have been two weeks. I don't know. But we all of a sudden had to get emergency um, emergency permission slips to go to Motown. And it was like the next day. So there had to be some kind of need to have these kids the next day. And we went down there. And it was like, wow, just like we asked, we're here, you know. And I'm all dressed up in my my trench coat and my whatever I was wearing then. I just remember we like we looking super formal in this place. But it was like a little room that had like two sofas in it. My whole class was sitting between the two sofas and on the floor. And this guy comes out and he goes, Hey kids, like I'm Mr. Whitfield. And welcome to Motown. And here at Motown, we study something called quality control. We use quality control. And, you know, here's the buttons and he's turning buttons. And I'm going, wow, this is so cool. That's, this is a job. That's where I was at. Ah, look at this job. And this guy goes, yeah. Um, uh, we're gonna. He said we're gonna. Um, we played this song at, at Ernie D's Campus Ballroom for the teenagers. Do you have any teenagers that go to Ernie D's? And we used to always hear Ernie D on the radio. And yeah. And he says, uh, "Well, we played this song, and it it was good, but it wasn't quite." didn't quite do what we wanted to do. So we're going to do something called Overdub. And over there is our artist. His name is Mr. What's your, he said, brother, what's your name? What you going to be calling yourself this time? I remember saying that. And the guy says, Edwin Starr. He said, yeah, Edwin Starr. Say hello to Mr. Starr. Said, hello, Mr. Starr. And uh, they took us in this room and they asked us, you want to test out the mics? And uh Everybody stump and they put the mic down and we stump and they wanted us to stump on this song, you know, and we we stumped and said when it comes out, you'll be the first one to hear it. So they brought the transistor radio in the in the classroom one day and that song was playing on the radio, WJLB. And oh man, we jumped around all over the room. And I just remember going, that's what I'm going to do. And it was a hit record, too. Uh, 25 Miles to Go. Yeah, great song. Yeah. That, so, actually, that, that's one of the songs that got me into soul music when I, when I was in, like, fourth grade. Right. Records were brought in for dancing on Fridays. Yeah, you, know when, they say, uh, you know when they say, come on, feet, stop, yeah. move. That's my class. We're standing there going, God, yeah. Man, that's a lot better than any of my field trips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had some groovy. I I gotta say that 
when I was in high school, all I all I worried about was every teacher being afraid of me. But when I was in elementary, teachers really loved teaching there because I I could have picked anything that they were exposing me to. You know, even like I think about living living here in Woodstock. There used to be a place in Detroit called Plum Street. When you got there, it was kind of like, you know, it was like your John Sinclair type guys all walking around tripping. And uh, my elementary school teacher took us to Plum Street, went into a, a, a little place, and the strawberry lot was doing their sound check because we could say, but I remember that. I never forget that, and uh, and uh, I had this guy. This was like one white teacher. Basically, you know, we had few. We had Mr. Man, and we had uh, Mr. Campbell. Mr. Campbell was he was my social studies teacher when I was like ten, and this guy, he was like he he ran it on us like this. He's like, okay, I'm your I'm your um, social studies teacher. And I want you to know that my parents don't like my career at all. It was like this, he had a bald head, but he had a little hair up, up past the ears. Cause this is like 60, 67, 68. And it's just like my parents don't like how I'm, my, my choices in life. But I'm gonna tell you something. We're gonna see the world. I'm gonna show you culture and how we're changing. It's like, wow. And you know, being in a thing where you didn't really have very many lighter hue people in the area, it's just like, okay, let's see what he, he's about. And he took us there to Plum Street. And I remember this girls, they said on, on, uh, on a Spanish fly, so you know, it was a little—it was a little sexy going on. Heard that term in a while, yeah. Yeah, it was a little sexy in the in the in the in the uh, pub that we went into, and uh, all that stuff. That you know, me, I, I'm like, okay, I'm here, I'm with you, you know. These are my jashiki, my. Whatever my bell bottoms, I'm there. That, that's it's kind of like I became hippie by default. Like I said, everything around me, yeah. rights, the people speaking out, those kinds of songs. The best funk for me, you know, is like uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield and Sly, and everybody trying to make their points. Because you know, you're trying to. If I could have bought rock records I wouldn't play I wouldn't have been able to play them in my home because mm -hmm. it's, it's either getting in the way of your 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 parents or your grandparents the music and you don't touch the Victrola that that was a wrap don't touch the Victrola so you had to find your way in there I had, it took me a while to ease my way into like listening to things that were psychedelic so funky express yourself 
That was fun. Did, did you go? Did you know growing up, uh, Steve Boyd? I no, I met Steve Boyd. I probably was twenty-one. Okay, because I, I, I recently was no, talking. I met the first time I met Steve Boyd. And the first time I met Steve Boyd, I didn't meet him. I remember sitting. What is that? We're sitting in Detroit over at uh, uh, young lady Cheryl James. She was our road manager. For She was the road manager of Parlette and Bryce in the day. There was Andy and then there was Cheryl James. And we were, it was Cheryl, Junie, Jessica, uh, all of us sitting at her house on the summer day and this young cat come up running past and he goes, hey, Cheryl, what you doing? He said, I'm ready to go down there and audition for Ron Banks' little brother got a group. I'm ready to go down there. So he goes, I said, oh, cool. And I remember Cheryl saying, yeah, he cocky. He got, he got, you know, he's got something about him. And uh, the, um, maybe it had been two hours, and he comes the other way, and they said, uh, you know, how'd it go? And he's like, ah, I got the job. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm going, that's pretty cool. In my head, I'm going, that's pretty cool. About a year, maybe a year and a half, about a year later, dude was on, on tour with that band. With Jackson, yeah. with Jackson Five, <laughs> they had the biggest, you know, song. Yeah, and, uh, and then later Bernie played on the record, and then and then always Malia Franklin. Malia Franklin was like in Detroit and wherever Malia Franklin would be. Malia Franklin was was a hub. Like you hung out with her, you knew badass musicians were there. So she. I came there one time and that's that dude, you know, and we were talking and I was moving from Detroit to Oakland and I was like, dang, you know, I always said I wanted to work with you. And uh, we said one day we will, and I moved to Oakland and when I came back, you know, we hooked up, but that was like years later. But that's been my boy ever since, you know. How so? How did you connect with George, and how did that acquaintance, and and how did that get started? Uh it's kind of it's coming from all kinds of ways, because I didn't really try to connect with George. Um, I was really under the early assumption that Fuzzy was the star of the show. And, uh, and that was so, if there was a possibility that I was seeking anybody out in that band, it was fuzzy. But, you know, I saw the band uh, when I was like 13. And uh, I remember they came to Cobo Hall. They came to Cobo Hall and they, they played Standing on the Verge was the only song they played for the whole entire time. It was just one lock groove. And 
when I got there, I was I was like 13, 14. And I, I remember walking because who stops the kid? And I walked to the back and I thought I saw chanting, like some folks kind of getting there, Nami O going on. I'm like, wow, okay, look at these cats. But it was you know, it was funky. But I'm from the streets, so it wasn't shocking. And then in Detroit, they were almost like a Detroit, like you heard the name come up in, in every one of your older cousins circle. Oh yeah, we hung out last night at 20 grand. Fuck another boy, that was nasty. Yeah. That that kind of thing was exciting for me. And then and prior to seeing them was the Robin Robin Seymour. Robin Seymour's Swinging Time used to be a Canadian show because, you know, in Detroit, if you live in Detroit at that time, that's when it was only uh, three channels, you know, ABC, CBS, and NBC, which was seven, four, and two. We had channel nine, which was CBC. And that's where we saw our early Motown. That's where we saw Funkadelic. We learned how to do the whatever was the new dance from Robin Seymour from Canada. I even look at it now. Like people don't talk about it, but you could they were breaking records. Motown was breaking records over there. Or or at least had the they had this format. You know what I mean? Show and they could show it back to Detroit. So Detroit's looking at it like, wow, they're getting really big now. They're on TV. But it was like, when I think about it now, it was the CBC. So it was a I think that was like their first way of presenting even. I saw Funkadelic doing Wohai and you know. Kind of almost like that thing that's on internet that you see them, but it was like it felt even darker. It felt like they had some. I just remember that it got a rise out of my mother. My like mother, a, like a voodoo kind of thing or something. Yeah, and my mother, like she hit the, she hit the, the telephone, like, and she started dialing like my aunt. It was just like, girl, turn on channel nine. Look at these Negroes, you know, and I'm, I'm looking back like, whoa, okay, this has really got her, because I don't know if she liked it, I don't think she liked it, I don't think she disliked it, though, it was just, a, it was, it wasn't the music, it was the call of the band, it was just a, look at them, they, they dare, because you, you're still coming from a time where some people, you do the blues. Like to me, I look at the blues guy, and the blues guys just look like I come off some kind of grimy thing because I'm oppressed. And I feel it looks like you're just coming out of oppressed. For me, Funky was just like, ah, 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 and we don't care what the rules are. And I love that. I always like anything that, that did that musically, I like it. Yeah. Well, it was more rebellious, and it had the Black Power thing too. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, that was my first kind of real funkadelic thing.
Thank you.